You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by our colleague and friend, Rick Rossow, who is the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies here at CSIS. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about the pandemic in India. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve, and great to see you, Andrew. Great to see you, Rick. India is a big story now in this in the global pandemic, obviously. You know, the case counts rocketed forward to well over 4.3 million. Deaths are over 75,000 now. It's climbing, and the trajectory is is quite stark around that. So we wanted to take advantage of Rick and, and try and put this all in context. So let's start, Rick. Just give us the basics around the outbreak, you know, the, the sequence, the, the narrative around the shutdown, what we discovered in the course of that shutdown, which was awfully dramatic, the reopening and what's happened since that all happened. And just give us the basic storyline and, and then we can dive into some of the particulars. Well, I was in India for an extended visit, January, February, more than a month. And so getting to see kind of the beginning of the slow burn where there were a number of cases in the region. You know, it was out of China. It was popping up in a number of countries, but not yet in in India. And there was kind of this belief that, you know, maybe something was protecting the country. You know, either that uh, they had an immunity because of a previous disease group that had been prevalent in India or the heat. I mean, of course, there was a lot of strange information coming out and seeing that there were no cases in a country like India, which has, you know, a relatively uh, light footprint in terms of a, of a healthcare system. You know, there was there was a lot of hopes. And that was really the first wave of seeing hope that maybe it just wouldn't take its grip on India. And there was very minimal testing, right? I mean, there's almost non-existent testing for the first period. Yeah. I mean, now, you know, you talk to friends in India who say that, you know, they had a relative or a family member or they themselves that had a a serious cough and things back then, but no testing. So who knows? I mean, people do get sick ordinarily, so you never know. But uh, people now looking back and kind of wondering, you know, was the information they were being fed that it wasn't there? Was that was that incorrect? And then you had the first few cases start to hit, you know, mostly the first tested cases were ones that people that had spent time overseas coming back to country. Kerala, which has a relatively well-developed healthcare system, was the first state that saw cases. And it's interesting, too, that came at a time that, you know, I think the Modi government during its first year after it won re-election last year was focused on stoking religious tensions. And you saw in particular in March, one large gathering of Muslims that took place ended up being one of the first acknowledged spreader events, too. And, you know, so I think using I think some of the initial cases to further a bit of a political agenda. But then, you know, you, you saw the the massive lockdown that was announced on March 24th and was transpired since then. But. You know, it is not necessarily Modi's game to play. You know, a lot of times we chalk it up to what you hear from the central government, what you see there. State governments in India have the capacity to, you know, manage it uh, differently. So, frankly, you've got 28 different scenarios playing out simultaneously. Some states, you presume, have a high case rate, but low confirmed number of cases, probably testing. Other states that have more developed uh, healthcare capacity and communications and more ability to distance. So, it's a story both of a central government that's been throwing a lot of different ideas at the wall and states that actually have to carry things out of practice. And sometimes they work together and sometimes against each other. Up until recently, the proposition was often mentioned that two thirds of the cases were concentrated in six states. 
and also that when the lockdown was instituted, which lasted quite a while, it was what, 90-day lockdown, it was pretty severe lockdown, that that triggered this amazing migra- internal migration that itself became a source of not just destitution and desperation, but of spread, of further spread within India. Can you talk about those two things, that those six core states where people are saying that's that's where, is that accurate or not? And then the profound and unforeseen impact of this mass lockdown over 90 days. Yeah, I think the, the six-state idea, I think uh, obviously there's very little independent uh, testing that's being done to prove or disprove. But when you look at two of India's largest states, the state of Uttar Pradesh, which has 200 million people, and today has only about 300,000 cases, and the state of Bihar, just to the east, which has 100 million people and has 150,000 cases. So you've got two of India's largest and least developed states, very densely populated, which have relatively low per capita caseload compared to some of the other states. So I think this concept of, uh, of a few states like Maharashtra that have really been driving the caseload, you know, you kind of scratch your heads when you see that. I mean, again, you got no independent way to verify. Maybe there are some things that Bihar and UP are doing correctly. But by and large, it, it sort of belies the imagination that these two states, knowing what we know about them, have managed to keep the per capita caseload low, while states that, you know, you expect are a little bit more well-developed, maybe have a little bit higher ability and capacity to test and take care of folks, um, that's where you see, you know, the caseloads really starting to spike. So I do think there's probably a a few other states where, you know, just based on what you see on the numbers, it's tough to imagine that COVID doesn't have a much deeper grip on on a couple of the larger states. Again, we won't actually know that for sure until, you know, sometime thereafter. But um, but but I do think this idea that is concentrated in a few states, it just doesn't seem very credible to me and to others that are that are tracking this and knowing what we know about some of these, uh, you know, really underdeveloped states. But, you know, as you mentioned, Steve, I mean, India, you've got a prime minister that, you know, feels that for, for tough decisions, you just can't offer kind of a lead in. So you've seen this with some of the big issues like, you know, demonetization when they took uh, high value currency out of the circulation, less than 24 hours notice. So too with the lockdown, you know, when it was announced, it was announced with uh, immediate impact and the transition period, there was none. So people's lives were completely uprooted. India, you've got a lot of migrant workers. They leave their village, you know, some of the poorer states and they move to the big cities to try to find, you know, manual labor and on construction sites and things like that or scavenging for recyclable materials and things. And suddenly when when life is completely locked down in those cities and they've got very little uh, way to support themselves, going back to the farming community where they've got a small plot of land and some food and things that they're familiar with and their families, you know, it's understandable why people want to go back. The uh, the lockdown, though, of course, the measures, you know, were, were just triggered this massive humanitarian uproot where you, you saw the pictures of migrant workers moving dozens, you know, hundreds of miles sometimes on foot just to get back to where they came from. You know, if they if they allowed a, a week lead in time, I mean, who knows how that could have been different? You know, maybe state governments began to lobby based on political support, extended even further. Maybe a lockdown would have been almost impossible to initiate, you know, if they've given more time. But what we saw was a terrible crisis unto itself. I, I don't know that there was there was a perfect reason. Easy to say that uh, giving more of a lead in time would have been would have been the model way to do it. But having seen uh, decisions that get delayed in India or, or extended, sometimes they become almost impossible to implement. So so tough to say whether that would have been the right decision. But, you know, the livelihoods and seeing people go back to the village. I think the big question that companies have right now, you know, is are they ever going to come back? You know, now that now that that's happened, now that you see this migration, hundreds of thousands of people moving, 
Will they come back to the cities and fill those roles they had, which were critical parts of the urban economy? So it was a crisis then. And what does it cause for future economic ramifications? People are still scratching their heads. Now we see the surge of this, you know, after the reopening, second quarter, the contraction of the economy by 23%, the deepest contraction ever. And now a worsening economic crisis and the surge of this pandemic moving forward and the government continuing to reopen, continuing to reopen and not investing much in the response, a certain denial that there's community transmission and, and giving a lot of leeway to the states, a little bit like the United States and sort of abdicating sort of centralized federal responsibility and saying, well, you know, let them know. Is that what's going on that's driving this surge right now? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, when you and I think of a lockdown, you know, obviously you and I, and, you know, we've been to places where you realize uh, lockdowns just aren't practical. India is one of the most densely populated corners of the world. You know, the average person has got no life savings to speak of, not life savings that could support themselves without work for many months. They've got a house that's so small where you can't store massive quantities of of food and other essentials. They don't have running water in their home. So, you know, a lockdown, as, as the West would consider it, at any rate, was absolutely impossible for Indian conditions for most of the population. Irrespective of what the central government announced or didn't announce, most people had to have plenty of daily interactions with other human beings um, just to keep the bare necessities of life kind of moving and, and humming along. So the lockdown, you know, was applicable to you know, a subset of the economy, um, which frankly was what was going to keep the engine going um, for the rest of the economy. So I think they felt that uh, that that economic pressure was probably even more strict and severe than what you see here in the United States. Um, But it is not something necessarily, I wouldn't characterize it as sort of abdicating authority to the states. Law and order is officially a state subject in India. So for the central government to kind of intervene in how states manage their own affairs, it's a pretty serious issue to kind of take up there. I don't think that the central government in India necessarily has denied the science behind, but to your point, I think they've tried to cloud in some ways because they do try to talk up the more positive elements, you know, that death rates are lower than expected, that uh, recoveries are increasing, you know, which is true. But at the same time, you know, the fact that they tout these statistics that kind of shed India's COVID crisis in more of a positive light, they don't deny the science of COVID and that distancing, you know, is something that helps necessarily. But uh, they they choose to offer to the public things that, you know, paint the picture in a little bit more positive light, but not a not a flat out, at least from serious government officials that I see a flat out denial of the science behind it. But cherry picking statistics, I think, is uh, is pretty rampant right now. And again, state governments just don't seem to be taking this quite so seriously either. So so it's a boiling kettle right now of problems that's happening. And, you know, caseload is worsening day by day. So you don't yet see them taking this head on even as seriously maybe as you did early on when they announced the national lockdown. Thanks. I want to invite my partner in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Thank you, Steve. Rick, amid all this, how should we understand Modi and his government? I mean, he still maintains popular support, but the brazenness of his government is striking, especially in the face of what we've been talking about, this rapidly exploding outbreak. How do you explain this? Well, I, I think to some extent, you know, again, the, the fact that India, you know, we, we can talk about people's economic livelihoods, their personal lives, the inability to distance, 
the fact that most folks don't have money to invest in you know the basic things i mean imagine having a reusable disposable mask every single day that that's just something that um you know the average citizen in india that's living below the poverty line wouldn't be able to afford quite so easily so i think to some extent you know i i think modi looks around and realizes that you know ultimately uh the ability to sustain a long-term lockdown you know for people's lives um you know the the, the ramifications for that could be even worse not just politically but but the actual ramifications could be worse than a complete and utter lockdown. We we don't know if that's true, but if you're sitting in his chair and realizing that most of your population can't survive long periods of time without without some kind of economy moving, it's very difficult. And you know, as as some have posited, you know, India is certainly one of those countries that's likely to see, as they call it, the uh, the K-shaped recovery. You know, those that are involved in kind of the high-end livelihoods that you and I would recognize on IT services and things like that. You know, basically they were given a computer and said, "Go home and work." You know, they were already doing the best of the best in the country, and they've seen their livelihoods impacted relatively little, um, while as the rest of the country, which does pre- present the largest voting block for the country, you know, have seen their lives uprooted in a lot more serious way. So, you know, I think there's there's some social truth to it that, you know, thinking of a lockdown the same way that uh, the West would have experienced it would have been impossible to any means in India. But then the concerns, too, that politically, you know, the gap between the, the well-to-do and the poor you know, is going to increase because of this, um, the ability to adapt lifestyles and such. So I think as a, as, a, as a leader, you know, he's trying to adapt to both of these things, the social realities, you know, which are different than we experience here in the United States and, and the political realities. But also, I think, you know, it's important too to, you know, make sure that we don't overstate, you know, his own political strength in country, because while he has acknowledged, I think, poll and poll again, as the leader that most citizens like, um, his party actually has suffered even before COVID, you know, a pretty striking series of electoral losses in state elections. They did well in the national election last year, but actually, you know, his party's fortunes have been declining in state elections. And again, because COVID is so much of a state issue, later this year, we've got a key election in the state of Bihar, which his party's a coalition partner in. We'll begin to see, you know, how do voters really treat at the end of the day, the actual execution of the COVID strategy. No better way to measure that. You, know, you can take all the polls you want, but who do the people vote for? And we'll begin to see that with state elections coming up later this year. So we'll be following that very keenly. So you brought up the United States. How similar are the U.S. and India? I mean, populist nationalism, skepticism of science and public health, lack of a national consensus on what needs to happen. Are we similar? Similar in some ways. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Prime Minister Modi, he sort of like President Trump, I think, has tried to do is smash through this elitism in the national capitals, speak more directly to people that are, you know, kind of outside the traditional levers of power, things like that. But once you get through that, you do tap into different mindsets. You know, I think the Modi government looks at, you know, international security and strategy, uh, tightening partnerships with critical partners like the United States, welcoming foreign investment. I think you see some areas where the two approach things similarly, like uh, both have been very protectionist on trade. But ultimately, what they what they see when they get to the last mile, a lot of times, you know, is kind of very, very different. But in terms of how, you know, that's triggered the reactions on COVID, you know, again, there are some similarities, you know, in both countries, you know, states play a crucial role, although the central governments tend to get the most attention. I think that uh, you do see a denial. I think in India, again, you don't see a denial of the science behind COVID, but you do see attempts to the best facts for the government shine the, the most brightly. So, you know, you will see government reports that talk about caseload. You can find that if you look for it. They're not denying that. But when you when you get the leadership that's on stage, 
They'll talk about recovery rates. They'll talk about low deaths per capita, things like that, which paint the country in a more positive light. So so not so much outlay. You, you can find some even in the ruling establishment on the fringe that will deny the science. I think that's less of a concern of the top leadership. But cherry picking statistics and maybe presenting the incorrect case to the population, that's pretty rampant. Now, Rick, just last week, Kaiser Family Foundation came out with a pretty dramatic uh, survey of American opinion that showed that fully 60% of the American population don't believe what President Trump says at any point around with regard to uh, the response on the coronavirus. Nothing like that, similar to that has happened in India, has it? I mean, you, or do you have a rising proportion of folks who are quite skeptical and critical of the government and its handling of the coronavirus outbreak? Not not rising. I, I mean, the group that that I tend to engage with the most, right, which are which are folks that are pretty actively engaged in public policy, you know, in the national capital and such, right? Our sister think tanks in India, trade groups, groups like that, they continue to raise questions. You know, certainly that uh, testing isn't deep enough. Not so much again that whether the Modi government believes or doesn't believe in science, they're not touting you know nutty theories. Although you know you've got. There was a there was a government press release early on that was talking about some home remedy treatments for COVID and things like that. But, you know, by and large, that kind of stuff. I mean, you saw some initial attempts where they were, you know, trying to provide some alternatives that hadn't been necessarily tested and proven. But uh, but that really hasn't been the case of late. I, I would say, you know, testing and whether or not the government numbers are real or not. That's the area that's been most under debate, not so much, um, you know, the science behind it, things like that. And I say like relatively little attention, probably too little attention paid to what state governments are or not are not doing. You know, again, at the end of the day, state governments control uh, most of the reins about what's going to happen in India um, between lockdowns, between distancing, things like that. They've got wide latitude to do what they see as right and fit and proper. And most states in India aren't even run by Prime Minister Modi's party. So even if you'd say like a BJP-led state, you know, Prime Minister Modi's party, would be more likely to follow, you know, his notion. Most states in India are run by other parties, including the opposition Congress. So states have a lot of lot of distance and you don't really see as much debate either on what's happening at the state level, which I think is, you know, is pretty tragic because holding states accountable as well for their own actions. You know, that's ultimately where you're going to get the biggest movement of the needle in India's ability to combat this and very little attention compared to what you see attention paid to what's happening in Delhi. Let's talk about vaccines. What difference does it make that India has huge vaccine production capacity? Well, you know, India kind of approaches the vaccine idea in a couple of different ways. One, you know, a lot of India's uh, high-end pharmaceutical firms are attempting to be first past the post in developing a vaccine, though, you know, Steve knows better than I do, the creation of novel molecules in India still is a real rarity. So uh, will they be the first among all these global majors that are that are pushing for a vaccine? You know, it's, it would be unusual if India were to do that. But in terms of production, you know, you've already got the announcement of uh the, the Serum Institute looking at uh, potentially being a partner to mass produce. You've got examples in India like what's been done for HIV medicines, hepatitis C and things like that, where the use of India's massive generics production to feed uh, global hunger for different medications, it's been done pretty successfully in the past. I mean, it's not simply snapping your fingers and, and all of a sudden having enough doses for the world. In fact, just today, the head of the Serum Institute was saying that you know, he personally doesn't think there's going to be enough uh, vaccine out there available, even if it's found, you know, in the next few months until 2024. That's the earliest he thinks that every person on Earth could be given the, the dose or two doses, depending on what it takes. So 
It's going to be a while. I think for Indy to produce the molecule first would be surprising, knowing all the players that are in there and Indy's experience. But India as a uh, as a workshop for the world to produce massive amounts, it's been done before. It's been done successfully. So it'd be great for India's own self-interest to see this uh, take place. And the Serum Institute has stepped forward unlike any other sort of production capacity anywhere in the world to say, okay, we're going to do a billion doses. Half is going to be allocated to India. And we could do even more. I mean, it's a dramatic move and a dramatic commitment and dramatic positioning. And I don't know if that action by by the Serum Institute translates into the leadership in Modi's office thinking, well, you know, I think we're going to, we will have a solution in terms of vaccine in reasonable time. And when you look at this situation, you'd think people in India should be in a panic. These these numbers are growing exponentially. It's on a tear and it's going to keep keep moving. Uh, but there doesn't, there's no apparent sign of anxiety. I mean, of panic in this period. I agree with you hundred percent. Panic does not seem to be setting in even, even on the vaccine issue. You know, you see senior government folks talking about it, but talking more that um, they, they really do have hopes that India would be the first to cross the line and develop a viable vaccine. They talk less about, you know, kind of being the back office production more that they want to be you know, the first to produce a novel vaccine. So not that that's a bad thing to aspire to. Of course, we all have been hoping that India's pharmaceutical giants would would shift away from focusing exclusively on generics production and look for novel molecules. But, you know, again, you know, there's a great opportunity for India to take hold of its hands right now is potentially feeding the world's appetite once a vaccine is discovered. As you point out, there's an organization ready to step up and do that. And it'd be great for, I think, them to get government buy-in and support. What do you think the next year looks like for India in terms of the outbreak the response, the growth. Paint the picture for us. What do you think is the likely scenario for for India in the next year? Well, based on, as we've discussed during this conversation, based on, you know, uh, what we've seen with states that are probably dramatically underreporting, the rampant spread, the the real inability, no matter what the government announces, to have a real lockdown. I mean, it's just impossible for a lot of parts of India to have a real lockdown. You know, Steve, you may very well see the virus uh, take root across India about as deeply as can be possible in a massive humanitarian crisis. And depending on when a vaccine comes out, that also might mean that, you know, also I know there's some debate, which you know better than I do, about, you know, what is a person's long-term immunity once they've had it. But if there is some level of, of long-term immunity, or, or even if it's medium term, you know, perhaps that's the bright side for India is a horrific humanitarian crisis. But ultimately, they may be the first to kind of burn through, right, where you've got herd immunity and a large percent of the population that's had it and, and life gets back to some semblance of business. Although with this massive scar, you know, living in the psyche about, you know, this this thing happening. And, and as we've been talking about the potential uh, political repercussions that could happen, there's some other things that, that I do see apart from, you know, the pathway we see right now, which is unimpeded growth of the virus across the uh, the country right now, which is, you know, it does appear to be reorienting the government's thinking back towards uh, growing the economy, economic reform which had been a main priority when they first came to office six years ago. But after its reelection last year, was more focused on uh, really stoking social tensions, religious tensions in the country. But now, as they talk about trying to recover from COVID, I know, I know it's pretty early to talk about recovery, but you know they are getting uh, talking more actively again about a serious economic reform agenda, opening the economy, inviting investment in. You know, also another another positive element on the fringe there is, you know, people in Delhi and North India are seeing blue skies for the first time in a long time, you know, less traffic, less pollution. And, you know, maybe you're finally going to begin to see a bit of political support for uh, issues related to climate change. Not so much that I think India has made this 
weird, you know, connection between COVID and climate change that you see kind of pump, bumping up sometimes in more of the anti-scientific fringe, but just, you know, they see the clouds for the first time. They, the Himalayas were spotted outside from India for the first time in, you know, in a decade or more. So, so there are some, I think one horrific scenario, which is it burns itself through the country and then maybe you've got some level of immunity. With very high mortality. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what transpires there, but I think you're exactly right. So far, the the central government is looking to reopen, you know, based on what they see as, you know, critical things for keeping the economy moving more than happens when you have that other lockdown. And then state governments that don't seem to be taking this very seriously at all. That pathway seems to be the highest potential right now. Rick, thanks so much. We try and close each one of these conversations with an appeal to our guest to sort of share with us your thoughts on what gives you the greatest hope looking ahead. What gives you the greatest hope and confidence that things might come right in India? The point I mentioned just just before is the one that I'm staking on right now, which is that this does get the government's head back on board for building the economy. There are so many steps that still need to be taken to put India on a different level uh, of economic development, privatizing government uh, companies, unlocking parts of the economy that are still closed to the private sector. And that had just been totally off the agenda, not just in the last year since the re-election, but even the last two or three years after their initial election. So you've had three years now where going back to the well and trying to get the economy going has really been off the agenda. COVID may be the instrument that really sparks the government back into focusing on improving people's livelihoods in a dramatic way. So so fingers crossed, that's uh, one of the important lessons the government takes, even if you know taking the COVID crisis head on uh, hasn't necessarily been the, the most striking lesson so far. Rick, thanks so much. It's really been great to have you with us today and sharing all of your thoughts. Really appreciate it. 